Hello and welcome to Disseminate the Computer Science Research Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wardby. This is the first show of 2024, so I guess a belated Happy New Year. I don't know if we're still doing that or not really. It's probably what we're into February now, so I don't think we can really say Happy New Year anymore. But anyway, I hope you all had good New Year's and um, happy holidays. So yeah, the usual reminder that if you do enjoy the show, please do support, uh, consider supporting us through Buy Me A Coffee. It really helps us to keep keep making the show. Now on to today's episode. I'm really glad to say that I'm going to be joined today by Tamir Eldeep, who will be telling us everything we need to know about Shabli, fast and general transactions in geo-distributed systems. Tamir is a PhD student at Columbia University and is also a um, software engineer at Jane Street. So he's very, very busy, I can imagine. (laughs) Great, great stuff. So uh, Tamir, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Well, let's uh, let's jump straight in then. So uh, I've given you a very brief introduction there, but can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became interested in database management research? Sure, yes. So um, I, uh, I grew up in Egypt. I studied computer science, and then I moved to the US to start my uh, career in software engineering. That was in 2011, uh, 2012 uh, timeframe. And as fate would would, uh, have it, I would uh, start uh, on the Azure storage team, uh, which is kind of a distributed storage database uh, team. And I found that I really enjoy that uh, uh, area. That same year, like in 2012, two very... Uh, influential papers came out. So, like during that time, I think the conventional wisdom was generally that, like you know, transactions are too slow. You, we don't need them. We're gonna like build our like all the cool like NoSQL stuff. You know, Cassandra and Bigtable and Dynamo and like there were all sorts of uh, these things. And then, like in uh, 2012, two papers came out: the Spanner uh, paper from Google, and also the uh, Calvin paper in Sigma uh, uh, 2012 uh, on deterministic uh, database systems. And they both kind of showed that actually, like you know, transactions a are still like very useful. Like even Google developers who are like you know known for being high, uh, uh, like uh, highly skilled, were s- uh, struggling without uh, transactions. And you know, here's a way we can actually like b- uh, build this uh, global scale system. Calvin kind of showed a uh, like a radically different way that you can do this. And I just I found like both papers very exciting, and like since since then have been just like keeping an eye on the on the area until I decided to start up a PhD myself uh, in uh, late uh, 2019, uh, early uh, 2020. I didn't like uh, intend to uh, work in that area specifically from the start, but I I just like naturally found myself uh, gravitating to the same area. So. Awesome stuff, yeah. So going back on the uh, on the Joseph there, you must have been in there pretty early doors, I guess. Then, so like, kind of, how long how long have the team kind of been going and that sort of project been going when you joined them originally? Because that's kind of 
feels for like 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 kind of day one sort of stuff. It wasn't really day one, but it was early. So I think the entire Azure thing started in 2006, the famous okay. project Red Dog. And I think like Azure Storage had been in production for maybe a year or two before I joined or, or something like that. So it yeah. was, you know, it was clear that like this is b- becoming a huge thing. It was a, like it, like already like lots of data being stored and so on but it was also fairly early days uh so yeah yeah no that's really cool and also as well i'm sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the the sort of the influential spanner paper and the calvin paper as well that's uh that's really cool and and we we, i just want to get this over because we spoke about this but off before we started recording i think it's quite funny as to why you started um to why you decided to pursue a phd during 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 covid um, or during the pandemic so I'll, I'll let you tell the listeners what was the main motivation what you tried before and then you're like nah screw this I'm oh i mean <laughs> i i tried baking like most people did during the pandemic but i <laughs> didn't find it very uh very interesting so uh basically decided to just continue uh working uh while also doing some research and it 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 i like no not that I like necessarily recommend it in normal <laughs> times, but it worked out. So yeah, it definitely did because anyway, we've got this awesome paper as well to prove it. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about that then. So um, let's let's start off, I guess, with some a little bit more background, set the scene for the, the for the for the listener a little bit more. So so can you? We're going to be talking about geodistributed databases today. So can you tell us what they are and kind of why we need them? Really? Sure. So I think. Like the definition of a geo, like so, uh, the distributed database is a database that's made of that runs on multiple nodes. It's not like a single node uh, kind of thing. And a geo distributed here means that uh, these nodes span geo, uh, like geographical regions. It's not like all in the same uh, da- uh, data center, for example, or the same cloud region. And the reason we need them, I think there's two main reasons. One is some or like many uh, 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 applications are like have users that are geo distributed. Like think about, I don't know, your Twitter or your Facebook or something like the users are all around the globe. So you want to keep the data for the user near them so that they can have uh, low latency access to it. Latency is is very important. We are all used to like snappy uh, uh, app experience, and like if the apps take too long to load, users such as like just leave. Companies yeah, yeah. lose money. It's a, a a pretty big deal. The other reason this is also pretty important is just uh, d- d- like disaster recovery. Like you know. I'm sure like your viewers are familiar with, you know, AWS region going down and the internet, you know, stopping to uh, work for a bit or something like that. So for a lot of like mission critical apps, you really want to store like a copy of your your data in at least like one more region than like where it's it's, uh, uh, home is probably more. Mm-hmm. Um, like hence, like to 
protect from things like natural disasters that can like happen and take a uh, data center down and so forth. Um, so these are, I, I think, the two main uh, reasons why you need geo uh, distribution. Yeah, it's, it's so true. I mean, we're so used to having these it's instantaneous sort of like any application we use these days, right? We just want it to be, we, we're, we're conditioned for it to be like instantaneous, right? And if, as soon as it's not like, well, I'm going to use this anymore. So yeah, there's a big fall. And obviously as well, the, the disaster recovery sort of angle as well. I mean, um, yeah, that kind of speaks speaks for itself, right? I mean, you, you think, it, oh, one region will be fine, but yeah, this, what, whatever, what can go wrong will go wrong, right? Nerf is lost. So yeah, we need to cover our backs there. So that's cool. Um. So yeah, so as you alluded to in when you were like um, uh, answering one of my earlier questions, um, you, like you mentioned that distributed database research has been it's been quite a fertile ground. There's been a lot of work over sort of the last mm-hmm. um, 10, 10, sort of fifteen years, especially as people have kind of refuted this notion that transactions we don't need them, and then everyone's like, "Hang on a minute, that's a really good thing. Let's have those." And um, but how can we do those performant at sort of large scale? And um, so maybe obviously you've touched on the briefly you mentioned Spanner and Calvin, but can you kind of give us a rundown of maybe some of the more state of the art systems in that space and sure. some of the problems that they, they kind of have still? Sure. The way that I think about this and like, it wasn't very obvious when I started doing research, but it t- turns out you can generally like categorize the state of the art systems into two buckets. Like there's fast, and there is general, but there isn't both. At least, uh, 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 I like until now. Um, <laughs> nice, yeah. So, in the general bucket, I, I think like these are your systems that support, you know, traditional SQL. They have this unrestricted API. They give you very strong consistency semantics. And uh, so things like Spanner or CockroachDB or Yugabyte or like, um, like they're all kind of Spanner influenced systems. And they are general in the sense that, like I said, they like give you uh, transactions with all the semantics that you want, you know, serious, ser- 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 like serializability, consistency. You can just like run full SQL on those with all the features, like there's no restrictions to the programming model. But they tend to kind of uh, uh, be slow, especially like if you have to do transactions that cross one partition. So, you know, like if you can partition your data in such a way that you can like only touch one partition per transaction, you are good, but that's typically not that easy to do and if you basically have to like run uh cross uh partition uh transactions you run the well-known two-phase commit algorithm or a variant of it like it's not exactly like like it's not always implemented in the uh, textbook form but it's always kind of like one variant of it and you take a hit because you know you have to do two rpcs and two writes to storage at least for every transaction and that takes a toll so that's the uh, uh general systems the fast systems kind of look at this and say okay two-phase commit is this really slow bottleneck 
and we really don't want to do it. So we are going to design the system in such a way that we don't do it. And in doing so, you kind of lose what I call generality. Like you lose a property of the system that is uh, fairly important. So one such property is like the easiest one is like, let's just not have any cross partition transactions at all. Like we will just have, like we will limit the transactions to a single shard. Um, Or we may let you do uh, transactions that cross shards, but with weaker semantics. Or the deterministic systems, which are kind of like structured very differently, that they can be fast and they do support cross-partition transactions, but they restrict the programming model in various ways that are kind of fairly restrictive. Like you either have to, like, like, so the code has to be deterministic, which usually rules out things like conversational uh, queries where you are like running a part of a query and then like look at the result and then like issue the other part and and so on and like they do things to like try and mitigate that but, but, but in general you really cannot support like a SQL interface on it you kind of have to come up with a d- different uh, query language to fit the system or something like that nice cool yeah so i liked your your trade-off there basically you've got these two families of systems these two buckets of systems the fast ones but they make some trade-offs weaker semantics maybe for cross-partition uh, transactions restrict the programming model so we don't have the the nice sequel that probably developers are used to and then on the other side we've got the general systems and um they take a performance hit for that you know when we're talking about a partition here are we talking about um Kind of is the is the physical location of the machine kind of related to these partitions? Are we talking I about think just partition yeah. in that context? Usually, just means a single machine. It's not exclusive to like geo distribution. Like even uh, things within a single region have the same trade offs. Right. I'm just saying, like once you have to like run across multiple machines, you usually have to either like run two phase commit and suffer the penalty, or to something else and sacrifice some property about the system. Yeah, as soon as the network gets involved, right, things are going to get a little bit slower. <laughs> that was like that was the like that was the conventionalism. Now, I, 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 like I should note that like there, this category is more about like systems that primarily store the data on uh, disk. Uh, okay. In memory systems, like there's been another line of of research there, like where you keep your data completely in RAM and you use things like uh, RDMA and so on. And there you could have fast and general, but it's also pretty expensive because it's all in DRAM. And really, I, I think the popularity of on disk systems just show that really t- t- developers really uh, care about that too. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, especially when you when you start using some of maybe this more kind of well fancy hardware or fancy way, it gets expensive, like you said, for one, and also as well, it's not as generally available, right? Like it's yeah. not as easy to use. So there's definitely yeah. some um, challenges there as well. Yeah. Cool. So we we know all the problems now, but we've we've solved this this trade off, this fast versus general trade off with Shabley, right? So can you give us the high level elevator pitch for the system first? 
Okay, so I think with Chablis, we are going after geo uh, distribution, right? And we we have two goals. One is we want transactions that are able, like that are uh, local to one region, to still have single region uh, latencies, right? And at the same time, we want to be able to like do global externally consistent uh, log-free snapshots without slowing down our like uh, the uh, regional uh, uh, rights in the system. So two goals, and they are in many ways like uh, uh, until uh, this point were kind of conflicting. Mm-hmm. You either oh plus uh, I think like so like that's the the fast part. The okay. general part just uh, speaks for itself. You still want to be able to like you know run SQL, have an unrestricted API, and like like hold the nice general things. Now okay. geo uh, distribution is an even harder uh, problem than normal. Uh, distribution. So, like, even systems that are like fast or general with within the data center, when they like when you deploy them as geo, they have even more trade-offs that they have to make. So, let's take Spanner. Right, Spanner was famous because of its true time API let you do externally consistent log free reads. And that's pretty uh, big deal. Like you can just like like do a, a global snapshot, log free, fantastic, right? But a it uses a specialized uh, clock hardware, which is not uh, like as widely uh, available. Although you know that's there are uh, startups and cloud providers that are trying to like make it more widely available but still it's not like as generally available as you would like and the other uh, problem is that because of these uh, uh, true time API like every single uh, write in Spanner has to wait out the clock uncertainty before releasing locks so before c- c- committing, you have to wait out the clock uh, 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 uncertainty to like to generate version timestamps that are like uh, guaranteed to have certain properties. Now this clock uncertainty bound is many uh, milliseconds in the Spanner paper. I think they have improved it recently. Like maybe it's like one millisecond or something like that. But it still means that basically you have to slow down every single write in the system to achieve the log-free snapshot reads. Uh, some uh, other systems basically require you to run consensus across the globe for every uh, for every single write you you make, which also kind of like slows down every single write in the system to let you like. Uh, read clock free and finally so like these are the slow versions right and then the, the fast versions are based on 
determinism, uh, which again like sac- like sacrifices the generality of the programming model. So on top of like the fast and general trade-offs for the, uh, the distributed transactions, when you go geo, you also get like you like have to sacrifice speed for generality or generality f- for speed even more. Like there's more uh, trade-off there. And what Chabli shows that you actually don't have to anymore. And I think like the pitch here is that you can have uh, local writes have hundreds of microsecond latencies and you you can have snapshot free with external consistency uh, lock free in the same system. Uh, so it's fast and general. Now, of course, if you have to like run a, a transaction that spans the globe, that that like that will be slow, but that's just like not avoidable. Yeah, there's some fundamental fundamental sort of limit to how fast such a transaction can go, right? But it, it sounds but, there. Yeah, continue. Sorry. No, I'm just saying. But reads, they can just go without impacting uh, rights at all. So like that's the thing that we uh we showed possible with Chablis. Nice, awesome. So yeah, it really sounds like we can kind of have our cake and eat it here. So that's really cool. So I just want to just pull on on one thread real quick. And you've mentioned it a few times while she's been talking about ex- this notion of external consistency. Yes. So maybe you can kind of give a, a, a brief sort of rundown of what that actually means in practice. Yes. So I think um like it's also known as a strict serializability, although like some people slightly distinguish between the two. I basically just uh, treat them as the same thing. So serializability, uh, I think, uh, is well understood. It means that like all the, the transactions you execute, the result is equivalent to some serial order. Okay, great. But it doesn't make any guarantees about which serial order. Uh, and one example here is that, like, basically, like, if you have a read-only query, you can always order it, like, as of the beginning of the database. Like, you can always return null, yeah. right? And yeah. that would be still valid serializability because... It's a cop out, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's technically it's still valid. Beginning, you know, I, I didn't, I, I didn't violate anything. It's, yeah. it's as if it happened before all the other uh, rights that you have. So that's obviously not very useful, uh, and that's where the consistency semantics come in. And like these kind of tell you, like roughly, how stale like things can be, and the strongest semantics that you can give is like this external uh, consistency. And it basically means that like, if you start to read, you are guaranteed to observe all the rights that committed before you started that read in real time. Like, you know, if somebody, so basically like I can commit a a transaction and then like, I don't know, call you on the phone, say, hey, you can re- uh, read right now and you go and execute it. And the system has to know that like to, to show you the results of my of my uh, write because it committed before your read started. Nice. Uh, so basically, like even if the two transactions do not uh, 
coordinate beforehand. The system is not allowed to order one before the other if one committed before the other started. It's got, uh, it's and, got to respect the, 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 the clock on the wall, right? It's got to... Yeah, kind like of physical time, yeah. basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, awesome. uh, now, transactions that are like, that start overlappingly together may be re- like ordered arbitrarily by the system. But if one committed before the other one started, it must be that the order will... Uh, re, uh, reflect that like that real time relationship, and basically like this is considered the gold standard semantics. Um, and uh, I think Spanner was the first like geo system that uh, achieves it, but uh, Calvin and its successors also do. That's, that's the gold standard we that with all these systems we're aiming for. I, I just on a quick aside, I, I remember reading somewhere also somebody, somebody somebody told me this that the the obviously when serializability is defined, there's no mention of actually like real time, right? Of sort of the wall clock time. But someone said that it's like it was almost they, they they didn't have to think about it because when they defined those semantics, like the notion of a geo distributed system didn't exist almost. Like it was everything on one absolutely. box, right? So they, they just got that for free then. But absolutely. then obviously yeah, yeah now obviously yes. well yes. changed. That's and... right. That's right. Like yeah. like when you think about like acid transactional semantics and so on, it was all like it was all conceived on a single box. And so you got that for free because you know you you are acquiring locks on things and that just like orders things. But once you have replicas and global t- distribution and stuff, this becomes like, this suddenly be- becomes a major source of uh, like surprises for. Yeah. That's some way for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Cool. Right. So let's dig into the details now of, um, of Chablis. But I guess before we do that, we need to give some airtime to its predecessor Chardonnay. And I'm getting a theme with the names as well. So we maybe need to touch on that at some point as well. Yes. But yes. yeah. So like, tell us about Chardonnay and how that then led to Chablis and start, let's, yeah. let's start filling yeah. in this, the details here. Sure. So, um, like I said, like I have known about the Spanner paper and the Calvin paper, and you know I've been thinking about the trade-offs they both make, and I like conclude like okay, it stems from slow two-phase commit, and then at some point I was reading another paper in NSDI 2019, I think it's called ERP, uh, ERPC, where it says data center RPCs can be general. And fast, and it shows that like on in like uh, bare metal data centers with like modern networks and things like kernel bypass uh, and so on, you can really have RPC latencies that are five microseconds in the data center. Like, okay, that's interesting. That removes kind of one reason why two phase. Commit is really slow, and then I I came across a bunch of other like re- research on things like NVMe or Zenand or like store like really low latency storage that are also single digit microseconds, and I was like, wait a minute, like it seems like it sounds like we can actually have very low latency two phase commit right now, like it like back of the envelope like. Estimates, it's like we 
like if these numbers actually hold, there's no reason why you can't design a two-phase commit protocol that finishes in 50 microseconds or or something. But as but a typical like KSSD write is or um like sorry a typical SSD uh, access is 300 microseconds like you know a commodity SSD like you know like not the the fancy Zenand or Optane ones mm. the one that 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 cheap one that you want to use to store your data it takes you like I don't know 300 microseconds to access so suddenly the latency of one IO is actually higher than two-phase commit. And I was like, hmm, interesting. So maybe two-phase commit isn't the fundamental bottleneck that people think it is now. And what would you do like, if that's the case? Like, what, what would the system look like? Can you finally be fast and general? And, I mean, no shockers here. The answer is yes. That's the result of, <laughs> of the Chardonnay paper. It was focused on single data center. The uh, idea was let's like make the assumption that two-phase commit is fast and design a system based on that. And what we wanted to achieve is not just low latency, but also the ability to handle high contention workloads. So, you know, contention is where like one or a few uh, records in the database become very popular that they get most of the access. And it's something that's very unpredictable. Like it's very easy to like have an app where like you, like the load is very like evenly balanced, but then suddenly something becomes very popular and you couldn't know before that. And once you have heightened contention, the slow systems basically the performance just like really drops really bad. Like yeah. either yeah. very high abort rates because of deadlocks, or if you or like if you are using optimistic concurrency uh, control, things just like you know uh, assume that data isn't going to change, and then they try to commit, and the, and the data change, and and they have to like restart. So Chardonnay starts from the assumption that transaction IOs are slow, the network and the log are fast, and it does a, a, a few things. One is it uses the fast RPCs to support the log-free snapshot uh, mechanism. And the way you do it is... Yeah, like in in Chardonnay, the key idea here is we have a service called the uh, Epoch service. It's a very, 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 very simple service. It's all its job is maintaining a single uh, count. That counter is not incremented by transactions. It is spontaneously like on a timer just advances. All right. So it's not a sequencer in the traditional sense where transactions would like go and like hit a number and that uh, determines the the ordering. No, it's just kind of a clock. Okay. But yeah. It's very coarse grained. And because transactions are only reading it, we can actually make it uh, distributed and scalable. It's not a bottleneck 
And that's a key uh, difference from like sequencer based uh, designs. But the key, the key point here is that like transactions, they run in very much the classic way transactions run in a shared nothing system. This is the root of the name Chardonnay because A, it's a sharded system. Sorry. Okay, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's good. And, and B, it's an architecture that's very classic that we think has a aged like fine wine. Oh, it's vintage. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so in, in, in Chardonnay, transactions run using two-phase locking. You know, like these are things that were designed in the 80s or something like by Jim Gray and Phil Bernstein and people uh, uh, like that. Very Like very classic design. Shared nothing. You read the, like you, you figure out, okay, like I need to read uh, this key. Then I'm, Gonna go to the partition server that that has that key. I'm gonna take the lock on that key. In the end, I'm gonna like run two phase commit to make sure that like everything is you know atomically uh, committed. But we use like very fast RPCs, so then the network time is minimal compared to the I/O time. And uh, during running the transaction, uh, sorry during running the commit protocol, you just read the epoch. You know, from the epoch service, you issue an RPC in parallel, you get the value, whatever value that was, is the 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 the, uh, the value that you use to, uh, uh, like, to version your uh, records. And the system just maintains the property that, like, a transaction that reads an, a like an epoch value five is ordered before a transaction that reads an epoch value six, and that's like that's very easy to uh, g- uh, guarantee. We talk about the details in the paper, but it's easy to just like m- like make sure that that happens because transactions still acquire locks and they are ordered so like when a tra- like when a transaction uh, finishes execution and it reads a value of the epoch say 5 that means that no like it cannot have depended on a transaction that read a value 4 and why is that because it is it has the locks if a transaction i'm sorry uh value 6 and because it finished execution before reading the epoch, it knows that all its dependencies finished and read the epoch and the value has been five or less. It couldn't have been six. Does that make sense? Because the, the epoch is monotonically increasing by the system in real time. If you read a value five, that, that, like, that means that anything you d- d- depended on had a value of five or less. It couldn't have been six because you read the, the latest value right now. Okay, yeah. So so that's nice because that means that the epoch boundaries are consistent points in the order and you can read their log-free. Ah, okay. So you, you do your, like, your log-free snapshot reads at an epoch version, basically. But yes. I guess the one before the... 
the one that's the active epoch at the moment? Is that how yes. that would work? That's I basically did... right. That's basically exactly right. Ah, okay, so it reminds me very similar of a scheme like epoch-based memory reclamation. I, rec- I can't say the word correctly. Reclamation? There we go, that's the word. And a similar sort of thing, right, about like kind of you get so far in advance with this epoch that nothing can have a, a reference to that epoch, uh, something that in the previous bin, basically, so you can then garbage collect that. So it's a similar sort of it's concept, very, I guess. It yeah. is very similar concept, and it, it was inspired by a paper called Silo, uh, it's also like it's a single node multi-core uh, database, but we showed how to basically uh, distribute it. Awesome, cool. But the, yeah, the and the nice thing is, if you want the property of external consistency, meaning uh, like uh, any transaction that started before I did, uh, uh, sorry, that committed before I did, I want to observe it. All you have to do is wait for the epoch to advance once, then you read as of then as of the like just uh, before the the new epoch, right? Because you okay. you know that any transaction that committed before you started has an epoch say seven. So you oh, oh, so like if you read uh, everything that that has an epoch seven. Then you are golden. Uh, nothing could have committed with a lower epoch. Very simple. Now there are some technicalities when you are like reading that we talk about in in the paper, but that's basically it. Like use the uh, epoch to like coarse grain version the the transactions. So yeah. transactions can have the same epoch, right? And you would have to like wait until after the epoch to read, but the epoch boundaries are the the points where you do your log free snapshot reads. Nice, cool. Now we'll, we'll probably, I guess, touch on this. Obviously, we've got to talk about Shabli and 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 everything first. But like, kind of the uh, how we actually choose this the, the time between these to increment these epochs. But maybe we can touch on that when we get to the results and yeah, stuff I later on. But that's a really good question. And like in uh, like in Chardonnay, it's not like super sensitive you just want it to be large enough compared to like the transaction execution time but small enough to not have the users wait for too long to get the external uh consistency so we set it to like 10 um, milliseconds or even five we found it worked well enough nice Cool. So I, I know kind of now talking about Chablis, it was there were some challenges about taking this this concept of Chardonnay in sort of a single single data center and then kind of going geo-distributed with this. So yes. can you tell us what these challenges were and then we're going to yes. talk about how you overcame them? <laughs> yes. So basically the problem here is that like every committing uh, uh, transaction has to read the epoch, which is fine if like, all, all the nodes are in in the same uh, data center, but once you go geo, the question is where do you put the epoch service? Like if you make it, if you put it in in one region, then like all that the transactions from the other regions have to take like a cross region RPC to read the epoch, which is bad because that would slow down the transactions in the other uh, regions. And if you try to like uh, replicate it across regions, you still have to like reading from the 
Facebook service like basically has to be like a, a consensus read because you are you have to get the absolute latest value. So then you are you are also running cross-region RPCs, which also slows down all your your transactions. But remember, in Chablis, we want uh, transactions that are like local to a region to have Chardonnay regional latencies. We are talking hundred microseconds. Yeah. So that's the conundrum. Where do you put the epoch service? And it turns out the solution is fairly simple because of the way the epoch service works. Turns out you can basically break it into two. In every region, there is like an epoch, we call it the epoch publisher. And this looks to the nodes in that region like the epoch service looked before. It is the thing that they talk to to uh, read the epoch. And then there is one like central thing that can live anywhere that's actually responsible for advancing the epoch. So the way this works is we have this like global epoch service. It would go and say, okay, now the epoch is five. It goes and pushes that value to all the publishers that are local to every region. And it does not advance the epoch again until all the the publishers have gotten the new value. Now the, the publishers are designed to be like replicated highly available services so it's yeah i was going to ask kind of what happens if we lose one of these publishers right like so this is uh, going down that's fine because it's a replicated thing okay cool what but like what this implies is that the value at every publisher can either be equal to the true epoch or one less right yeah but it turns out it's really easy to fix the algorithms to take to take account for that fact, and I don't want to go into like too much details, but that that trick here is that when in doubt, you just need for the epoch to uh, to uh, advance, and there will be no doubt. Okay, so we just wait to get one more ahead, and then we know for sure that it, we're all good. We can't because I guess everyone can only be at the latest one or the one before. So if yeah. you then get to the latest one, it, nobody can be, you, you can't be that one before. So then it's all good. Absolutely. Okay. I see. I see. I see. Nice. Nice. And once I'm you do good. that, <laughs> suddenly you can read lock free in a geo-distributed fashion. All, all the while, read, write uh, transactions. They just read the epoch from the from the local thing using fast RPCs. They don't block. They don't wait on the epoch to uh, advance. Nothing. It's just they keep the exact same latencies as 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 before. You didn't need any fancy clock hardware. You didn't need like GPS clocks or anything like that. You didn't make any assumptions about the maximum clock skew. None of that. Just did one number. <laughs> Just one number. Yeah. And it turns out it's easy to scale and maintain that one number. Like I said, like you have to have to make sure that like that one number is like, you know, uh, replicated. Correctly, it, yeah. <laughs> it's durable and all of that, but it, it, it is a n- not a scalability bottleneck because you can have as many of these publishers as you want, basically. And uh, it's not a latency because you read it using like kernel bypass RPCs, you know, in like like even on public cloud, like not uh, bare metal, 
you get today 20 microsecond latencies or so. Yeah. Uh, so this is something that's even like on cloud you can have today. You you like nothing fancy, no clock, you know, uh, 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 hardware, n- nothing like that. So fast and general, which was the goal. <laughs> yeah, mission complete. So let's talk some numbers then, I guess. Yeah. Um. So can you tell us about your experiments with Shabli and kind of what the results were? Yeah. I, like we ran a very simple experiment. Like we like ran the YCSB benchmark to like measure regional latencies, and uh, I mean m- memory doesn't exactly serve me right, but I think like a, a single write would take like low hundred microseconds compared to cloud spanner. It would take many m- milliseconds. And then we run the snapshot read, the log-free snapshot read with external consistency and so on. And so uh, to clarify, like this is a deployment across the U.S. So like we have a region in central, in east, and in uh, west U.S. Yeah. And you can like take a snapshot across those, I think, uh, with external consistency and everything. And I... If memory serves right, I think like 80 milliseconds, like something like that, compared to Spanner, which is like 60 milliseconds. So it's a bit slower than Spanner because you have to like wait for the epoch to uh, advance, but it's comparable while our uh, write latency is like an order of magnitude uh, faster. Nice. Uh, So yeah, I'd count that as a win. (laughs) I I I hope people uh, will agree with that. Yeah, uh, some stuff. So I always like to ask this question as well. So this is like kind of: Are there any sort of situations? Obviously, we've we've kind of taken these two boxes of fast and general, and it's a. Uh, it, it, are there any cases though when the performance of Shabli or there any use cases where the performance may be sort of suboptimal? I guess I'm asking here, kind of what are the limitations of the system? Sure, I do think like. Compared to something like Spanner, I don't think so, to be honest. Okay. Um, but I think compared to something like Calvin or its geo uh, distributed uh, successor called Slog, they're able to handle cross-regional uh, uh, writes more efficiently. Like if the system has lots of like cross-regional writes, um, the the performance of Chablis will be fairly worse than Slog. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So it can be sensitive to that aspect of workloads, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah. So basically but, like we make kind of strongish assumption that you don't do cross region writes that often, but you care about cross region uh, reads. If that's not really true, I think like compared to something like Slog, it, it the, the system would, perform worse okay but obviously these, these are the different trade-offs with with slog right as you said alluded to earlier on it falls into that fast category but then we're probably giving up yes. some yes. Like, you like, will lose like yeah. you know the general of yeah. programmability and uh, yeah yeah nice cool so um, i guess yeah so yes so where do you go next with shabli then so what is the next step is there a next step there is uh there is an next step and i think like so far like in the paper we kind of assume that we have like the 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 geo 
partitioning of the data is, is static and, and known, but we want to be able, like, we want the user to be able to kind of like run a transaction that includes move this piece of data from Europe to the US because you can, you know, like, right. say you are a user of Facebook and you were living in Europe and then you move to the US. They, the app will want to move the, the data with you, right? So, yeah, yeah. Working on like geo partitioning and like making that a first class part of the system while supporting fast and general transactions. I think that's where we are going next. Nice. Uh, it's kind of concept with... of ownership, I guess, of like having the, the data move with, with, yes. um, with Indrive. It reminds me yes. of the, just on a tangent, a system called is it Zeus that did something similar, maybe. I don't know if it's on your radar, but I, maybe it was, maybe I'm getting it confused because yeah. it was something We're, else. We're but... uh, kind of like now, like reading all the systems that. Yeah, did, yeah. Did things. Similar, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it's just like, like there are pr- like problems on like okay like how do you figure out where the data item is without running a geo distributed query because you know, yeah like yeah so like there are whole sorts of like fun uh, problems here that we are uh, thinking about um so that's certainly like one area that we are uh, going for next with Chibli. Yeah, that's that'd be really interesting to see because there's, there's a whole interesting space that I imagine of, of of things to tackle. So that's cool. Um, yeah. So my next sort of set of questions are sort of um more sort of high level and sort of general. Um, so yeah, the the, the first question is sort of kind of what impact do you think your work on Shabli can have, and as sort of a software engineer, developer, data engineer, etc. How do you think I can kind of leverage those sort of findings of your work? So I think there are two uh, things here. One is the Epoch versioning and like having the Epoch service and so on. I think it can be useful in a lot more contexts. Um, Like, you know, ordering events and stuff like that. And just like, it's something that comes up in a lot of contexts. So yeah, uh, I think like people can like look at this and realize this is exactly the like the level of ordering that I need. I just I don't have to order like every single e, e, like uh, transaction or e, e event in the system with 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 regards to each other. But like if I can like group them after the fact uh, opportunistically using epochs, then use the epoch boundaries to um, to like. Uh, Read that. I think this is an idea that probably have more uh, uh, broader uh, uh, like uh, applicability. So that's one aspect. The other is just I really do think that databases that we have right now, you know, they were designed in some way for like a different platform, a different hardware, a different era. And like, mm. there is a potential to just like have something that's just straight up better. Uh, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping that like that kind of research, you know, encourages people to revisit the assumptions, you know, something like, Oh, Two-Face committed this like horrible uh, uh, bottleneck that we can't solve or, Oh, we need these like fancy clocks to, do like geo uh, log free reads like that uh, kind of thing. 
I, I'm hoping that like people can like look at this and realize, oh, like these uh, assumptions no uh, longer hold, and we can build like next generation systems that are better. And you know, to facilitate that, I think we are working on releasing Chablis as an open source thing. So there's still some work there to move it from like research quality code to actual like things production that grade would, yeah people could use. would would want to use but uh, it's something that's that will uh, hopefully happen soon so awesome that'd be great to see how that progresses well good luck with that i hope it's uh, a successful endeavor <laughs> cool so. um awesome yeah so i guess you've worked on this well, i mean how long was you working on this when did the chardonnay project start uh, I think Chardonnay started um, in late 2021 okay, or yeah. like early 2022, something like that. Yeah. Uh, it got rejected once before it got accepted. So, you know, that always... <laughs> I should write a passage. I mean, someone told yeah. me once, I'm sure it's the, 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 the Raft consensus paper, which obviously is extremely, it's been extremely influential. I'm sure that got rejected a couple of times before it was finally accepted. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's a lottery sometimes, right? The, yeah. the, um, so, the yeah, review yeah. system, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the paper, thankfully, was well received from the start, but Chardonnay... Okay, that's fantastic, yeah. 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 yeah, so my, the question I'm leading up to is sort of across this sort of journey of working on these systems, what's the sort of like the most interesting lesson that you've, you've you've kind of learned um i mean i really just think that like a lot of the uh, like there is a lot of potential for just like lo- like looking at the conventional wisdom and like not accepting it as true now it's not useful to just be contrarian i think that's just not a good thing I think it's important to understand why the conventional wisdom is the conventional wisdom. Like one thing that really drove me mad for a, for a bit was just like people were saying, "Oh, transactions they don't scale." You know, okay, but why? Like and like really be they didn't really have how, like, how have you arrived at that conclusion? Like what's your thought process? Like, yeah. Like sure, you tried running, I don't know, like MySQL and it didn't scale, but that really just doesn't necessarily mean that. And then, like so it's important, like what I would say to people who are like, you know, thinking uh, about uh, starting their own like re- research uh, journey. It's really important to understand why the decisions were made in in certain systems, because even though they may have been the best decision at the time, if you don't uh, I like uh, uh, understand what went into them. Uh, you can miss out on opportunities where it's no longer the case. Like, you know, mm. two-phase commit was genuinely a problem. It like the people who tried to avoid it, like, weren't misinformed or stupid. They it oh, was doing really it for the fun, right? Yeah, <laughs> it was really, really a problem, right? So it just so happens that I happened to to uh, to stumble upon the fact that it's no longer an issue, and I can do some I, and I can build a system based on that. Uh, the other lesson that's kind of like more practical, I think, or like more concrete is that when you are dealing with on-disk systems, multi-core designs and and single data center distributed designs can look surprisingly similar and okay. look for ideas in one to apply to the other and vice versa. So this is kind of like 
the whole like e- epoch thing was in in many ways an extension or an application of the multi-core silo epoch and it's very counterintuitive like you you think okay like this can only like work in a multi-core single node thing but no because the latency of disk is much higher than the network suddenly a lot of the things that made sense in multi-core can make sense in distributed systems and vice versa i suspect like you know yeah so that's just a a thing that i i that wasn't at all obvious to me like when i started but i it's just something that's like always in in my mind right now like whenever i'm designing something now i'm like let me see what the multi-core people <laughs> uh, did about that and maybe i, I can s- steal an idea or two yeah i like that oh that's an interesting observation i'm definitely going to keep that in mind as well and i liked what you were saying about um kind of when you use this conventional wisdom and like challenging the assumptions or reviewing those assumptions that were made to kind of get to that conventional wisdom because you know what the world changed right things change so maybe those assumptions are no longer valid assumptions anymore the the, the ball game's changed but yeah no so I, I really like that uh, i'm going to jump over the next few questions just for the just for the interest of, of time to get to my favorite question uh, sure. which is about the creative process um and yes yeah, so i kind of want to know here tamer how you go about generating ideas and then once you sort of generated a whole bunch of ideas like selecting things to dedicate two to three years or however long to 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 working on um i don't know i'm very chaotic here i don't i wouldn't like there's it's not uh, but i think to me the way i I try to think about problems is just like really try to decompose the problems and figuring out why they are like you know you it's it's a problem because we do it that way okay fine but if we try to change this very small thing how can i take that and does it even like make sense and so on so i think like for example i was like trying to to figure out how to do block free reads in chardonnay and i kept like banging my head against the wall for a few weeks trying to like you know change the right algorithm to make it work like in such a way to felt like it just like nothing really worked uh, but but uh, but then i re- remembered the silo paper and i read it and i was like you know what this epoch thing is interesting why can't it work in a distributed environment like and then i kept like and then i couldn't like there were two challenges that we solved but there was no fundamental like I, I I was just like trying to kind of prove by contradiction that it cannot work in a distributed environment like and then I couldn't prove right you know so uh, at this point I was like maybe it can be solved maybe it's just and then you sleep on it for a while and yeah. well, like one day you get the epiphany so that's kind of like how I like to to, to do things really think about the problem decompose it read papers like i think just like in some ways there are very little new ideas under the sun it's really just this like yeah it, it being able to rec- like recognize something from a different context and apply it in a new uh, context can be very valuable so that's really part of my creative process is just like you know see if there's if someone smarter than me figured something out and see if i can just like you know 
cleverly apply it and uh, make it work in a way that it didn't work before. So definitely standing on the shoulder of the giants is like... And that's the exact phrase I had in my head when you were talking then as well. Yeah, that's yeah. funny. <laughs> uh, like, re- like trying to like reinvent the wheel, which is, I mean, t- to be fair, research is in many ways rewarded on very strong novelty so that's kind of like yeah. the, the 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 incentives are structured in that way but to me i really like solving an important problem a lot more than coming up with a cool technique that may or may not be uh that useful so that's just uh yeah, yeah. No, that's a fantastic answer to that question and it's another one for my collection um, so thank you for that. It's great. I love to see how everyone everyone has a different answer to that question. It's 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 um it's always interesting to see what people people say and kind of get a, an insight into how how you work, how your brain ticks, and how what makes you tick. So yeah, awesome stuff. Cool. So it's um the last question now. So what's the one takeaway you want the listener to get from this podcast episode today? Uh transactions they can scale they can be fast they can be general don't like you should expect more from your dbms because it can do more for you i love that what a great message to end on thank you so much david it's been a fantastic chat thank Um, you so much for for having me brilliant where can we find you on on socials are you on any of the platforms where the listener can go and go and connect with you or anything like that? i'm not really i think linkedin is is the best way uh, okay cool we'll drop it we'll drop that in the show notes and we'll put links to all of the work and everything we spoke about today in the show notes as well so the listeners can go and uh, go and find that but yeah thanks again and just a quick reminder and to the listeners if you do enjoy the show please consider supporting us through buy me a coffee it helps us to keep making the show and yeah we'll, we'll see you all next time for some uh, more awesome computer science research <laughs>